1: Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your genes. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Ben Eggleton applies optical skills to radio for bleeding-edge communications technology. But first up, here's the news about government nudes. Australia needs nudes? The Australian Government e-Safety Commission has announced it wants people who are worried about private nude photos being seen by strangers to post them to Facebook. Well, they'll be seen by strangers. The Facebook employees will review and store the images for an unknown length of time until they're used to train image recognition software to block the photos from ever being reposted on Facebook. The software calculates a hash code to substitute for the actual photo, sort of like a digital fingerprint of the image, instead of comparing a newly uploaded photo to the original image. The Australian government and Facebook promise that unlike every other nude image ever stored on a public server, these ones will never be shared. Facebook was originally started as the Facemash website to rate the attractiveness of student ID photos of women students from Harvard University. It was like a Harvard Uni version of Hot or Not, but without consent from the women. Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg has famously declared that privacy is no longer a social norm. It doesn't inspire confidence. In 2015, the Turnbull Abbott government passed the Enhancing Online Safety Act which established the office of the e-safety commission. The e-safety commission was largely about protecting children from online bullying, but now it wants to help protect women from image-based abuse, what the press calls revenge pornography, where intimate photos are broadcast online without consent, either by angry ex-lovers or from having your phone hacked or stolen. Image based abuse is already illegal in many states around Australia, and there have already been successful prosecutions. Would just enforcing the law work better than posting to Facebook? Or are there deeper social issues to deal with? If you're worried that an ex lover may post intimate photos without your consent and cause you public humiliation, the Australian Government wants you to fill out a form on the eSafety Commission's website and then log into Facebook and send the photos you need to stay private to yourself using Facebook Messenger. The eSafety Commission will then notify Facebook staff that they need to snoop on your private Facebook messages to yourself. From that point, the Facebook employee is to be trusted to look at the photo, to judge that it is embarrassing and that you wouldn't want him to see it, and then feed the photo to a queue to be processed into a digital fingerprint hash and eventually deleted. If Facebook detects someone in the future trying to post that exact same intimate photo to Facebook, it will block the image. Neither the Australian government nor Facebook have said what kind of training or vetting the employees who look at the photos will have, and whether the people who later attempt to post your images without your consent will be referred to police to be charged. Facebook already banned the posting of naked or sexual images, and at this time... Facebook has no power to stop the images being posted anywhere else online. Will they be making the hash codes of the photos available to other websites in the future? As the journalist Van Badham wrote in The Guardian, couldn't the Australian government simply ask Facebook to provide people with their own copies of this software so that they can create their own digital fingerprint hashes instead of asking them to trust posting the nude photos to Facebook employees to do it for them? Surely it's more empowering to do it yourself. If you could upload the digital fingerprint hashes yourself, then you could be certain that nobody else ever sees the images that you don't want them to see, and you never put them online. Of course, you're also being asked to trust that the digital fingerprint hashes can't be reversed to restore the original image, that Facebook won't be hacked, or that the images won't be simply backed up while they're in the processing queue. With their long record of personal data breaches, it's a good thing that the Australian government was wise enough not to offer processing the intimate photos themselves. They would have made a hash of it. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And next, the bleeding edge of communications research. Ben Eagleton is an Australian Research Council Laureate Fellow and Professor of Physics at the University of Sydney director of the Australian Research Council Centre for Ultra-High Bandwidth Devices for Optical Systems, QDOS, and director of the Institute of Photonics and Optical Science at the University of Sydney. I began by asking him, are you applying what you've learned to optics and photonics to radio communication? Yes, so my recent research, a fascinating new direction for my group,
2: is based on a breakthrough from my group about five years ago, And it was an experimental demonstration in the lab where we discovered that in the photonic chip that my group has really pioneered, these are integrated circuits that are designed in silicon and other novel optical materials. These are really the size of your thumbnail. Imagine a silicon wafer that's been scratched and we've embedded in this wafer circuits that guide light. And we discovered in these circuits that the light wave would actually induce a sound wave. For the first time, we had structures in which light and sound co-propagated, and we could probe the acoustic properties of these materials at the nanoscale. And So that was fundamentally very interesting. But what we then realised we could do, which was really uh, surprising but and profound, was that it turns out that the sound waves allow us to bridge optical waves with microwaves. So we can use the sound waves that... We are exciting in these structures to bridge these very high frequency optical waves with the lower frequency microwaves to create exquisite microwave devices that are fundamental components of all microwave systems. So if you think about 5G, if you think about radar systems, if you think about satellite communications, if you think about even what's called electronic warfare, which is using countermeasures and radar in the battlefield, you're typically talking about electromagnetic waves that have frequencies of tens of gigahertz. And the typical problem that is presented to the scientists and engineers is they would like filters and devices that can process across that very broad range of frequencies with exquisite resolution. And that turns out to be very difficult to do using off-the-shelf components. So our technology which we've published and patented and we've prototyped and we've actually delivered prototypes to key stakeholders in the US Army Research Lab who've tested these devices is a chip that manipulates microwave signals so the input to the device is a coaxial cable, a microwave signal, the output is a microwave signal but on the chip we rely on the interaction between light waves and sound waves to manipulate a microwave signal and the particular device that we're focused on is a microwave filter This is a a filter, like a traditional filter that we're all familiar with. We learn about filters in high school that can be tuned from 1 gigahertz to 50 gigahertz in a microsecond. And that filter is an essential fundamental building block of any microwave system. So we've had enormous interest from the defence prime. So that's uh, companies that are in the defence business, electronic warfare, also in the microwave systems area and we're starting to get real traction and so these technologies not only does it have that exquisite performance but they are compact so this is something that is the size of a 20 cent piece it could be packaged into a device the size of a smartphone and be very energy efficient uh, very compact and in terms of uh, i guess the key application that we are being drawn into uh, which is in defense it's very attractive because of the size weight and power consumption so they're very interested in this technology because it's compatible with drones. You'd like to put one of these devices on a drone or on a joint strike fighter and it weighs you know, 100 grams rather than 50 kilograms. And it has this very broadband performance that is so important when you're out there dealing with this very complicated electromagnetic environment associated with the modern metal field. But there are, of course, applications in the civilian world, particularly around radar and wireless communications, so we talked earlier about these uh, sort of wireless backhaul, 5G backhaul connecting banks, using big radio dishes to send maybe 100 gigabit per second from New York to New Jersey, and that application also requires these exquisite filters.
1: And if you're etching little channels on a chip and you've got some sound generated, could that have applications to microbiology or chemistry?
2: So that's an interesting question. So it turns out the ability to generate these sound waves has a whole range of applications beyond the sort of telecom and wireless context. And one particular application is, in fact, in sort of biomedical devices. And I guess to frame that conversation, I have to step back and talk about a very big idea that's been in the community literature for many years, and that's the idea of a lab on a chip. So if you think about the healthcare pharmaceutical sort of device area, the holy grail has been for many years the idea that I could basically print my lab on a chip and that chip might be compatible with my smartphone and that chip might incorporate some basic plumbing to manipulate different chemicals, to mix chemicals, to synthesize chemicals, to analyze chemicals and that all sounds very elegant The problem is that fundamentally that lab on a chip is still a chip in a lab. So that the publications that are reported in Nature on these devices um, show you a chip, but the reality is the chip is sitting on a big table, and on the side of the table is the, uh, the hydraulics, if you like, to pump the fluids and the analysis instrumentation and the RF signal generator over here. So what we've been thinking about is the possibility of using these sound waves to directly manipulate these fluids and directly directly manipulate, for example, cells and DNA structure. And you can do that, and that is possible, particularly with these very high-frequency phonons that approach gigahertz, which is the regime that we're interested in. We can actually manipulate these uh, soft matter to create a true lab on a chip. And so that's a very exciting area. But this new frontier of light and sound is, is really transforming the way we think about information in terms of bridging optical and microwave. I talked about that. But also opening up completely new areas of science and technology in uh, the health sciences and biomedical devices.
1: Could it bridge to the people who are using sound to move things around, like the ultrasound tweezers sort of things? Yeah, so
2: that's exactly the right example. So ultrasound tweezers is, in a sense, the analogue of what I just referred to. I guess the only difference in ultrasound, it's tens of megahertz So you're talking about more macroscopic objects, and there have been some pretty impressive demonstrations of ultrasound levitation, of small particles. I think what I'm referring to is higher frequency sound waves, possibly a gigahertz, so you're manipulating very small volumes of fluid. You might be manipulating cells, or you might be separating different chemicals or mixing different chemicals. You might be creating a centrifuge, for example, on a chip. But, yes, sound waves really provides a new degree of freedom. I like to say the sound wave is the next wave.
1: Sonic screwdrivers.
2: Sonic screwdrivers, that's right. I guess that's the frontier it is. And I think the physics of sound is interesting. Uh, It turns out that the equations that describe sound waves are very familiar in terms of how we describe light waves, but also quite different. So... We've had to reformulate how we describe these sound waves at the nanoscale and we've had to reformulate how we describe the interaction between light waves and sound waves in these nanoscale structures. So physics is really quite fascinating and fundamental and has really encouraged some of the best theorists, I think, in Australia to get on board this very exciting new direction. But now that we can harness these sound waves and and how they interact with light waves, we can build these very exquisite devices that provide microwave signal processing or allow us to manipulate on a lab, on a chip architecture, somehow a biological sample.
1: And are they also used to change speeds between optical and electronic systems? I was reading a little bit about that somewhere because you've got sound going slower than the photonics.
2: Yeah, so one of our very recent breakthroughs that got uh, picked up in the global media, it was a paper published in Nature Communications from my group, And what we realised is that we could actually take advantage of the very simple fact that the speed of light and the speed of sound are different by about 100,000 times. Now, we're all familiar with Einstein's statement about the speed of light, three times 10 to the 8 metres per second in a vacuum. And most of us are roughly familiar with the speed of sound. We remember that Chuck Yeager broke the speed of sound, the sound barrier, in a rocket plane Shortly after World War II, and we know that a 747 flies at about 90% of the speed of sound at 40,000 feet. Well, in a solid state material, in a glass or in silicon, the speed of sound is about 10 times faster. So the difference between the speed of light and the speed of sound is about 100,000 times. Okay, so that's interesting. Now, what people have been thinking about for about 15 years is the possibility of slowing light down. We were very excited about this five ten years ago when I published papers on this topic but it turns out slowing light down is very difficult if you could slow light down you might actually build a buffer you might be able to store information but it turns out it's very challenging we can slow light down by about 10% we can slow light down to very slow speed but we have to do that at cryogenic temperatures so at a millikelvin and that's not really compatible with the real world system so We decided to explore an alternative approach. Rather than slow light down, we simply couple the information from a light wave to a sound wave. One of the journalists uh, kind of coined the concept that we're storing lightning in thunder. And it really is the right idea. We're all familiar with lightning and thunder. We see the lightning and then we wait five or six seconds and we hear the thunder. So what we do is, rather than slow light down, we actually couple the wave packet the information that's stored in the light wave into a sound wave and it sits in the sound wave which is propagating along and 100,000 times slower and then we read the information out of the sound wave when we want to extract it and that's exactly how memory works in computers and not only did that work very impressively but we demonstrated that that process of coupling the information from the light wave to the sound wave and back to the light wave is completely phase preserving it's coherent that means that the information is retained, and in particular, when we think about information, it's in the context of the amplitude, but also the phase. The phase of the wave matters. Information is encoded in the phase as well. So this Bluwan effect, which is the term that describes this coupling between the light and the sound wave, is completely coherent and phase-preserving, which means it's compatible with real-world communication systems.
1: And this sort of memory buffer, what does it let you do? So this is not going to replace
2: your USB stick or your hard drive. This is really a buffer in the context of communications infrastructure. So think about a data centre. And really the analogy I would use is think about the highway systems again and what you're really trying to do is to ensure that all of the channels are synchronised. So when you get to a router, it's a bit like coming to the spaghetti junction that you get to when you drive out to the Blue Mountains and you're halfway along and you get to this junction with all these freeways and highways. And if you're in the left lane, you either have to slow down or get out of the way. So really the buffer is about the slowing down so that you can allow information to come on and off and at the end of the day it's about synchronising data so these buffers are really there as part of a network ensuring that everything's synchronised, that you're not going to have different data packets sitting on top of different data packets and it's just an essential fundamental building block of any communications network and the point of course is that this is a completely all optical approach except that it uses sound waves to achieve the delay but it has the bandwidth and the low latency and the energy consumption attributes that are really needed for this next-generation communication systems.
1: Are you also looking at optical computers?
2: Well, optical computing is a bit of a loaded term, and I'm nervous uh, to suggest that is what we think about because, of course, we're not going to replace the CMOS electronic computers with optical computers. There is certainly some interesting work that's been done in the past and it turns out that it's coming back and I guess optical computing really refers to doing very specific functions all optically that offer improvements in particular parallelism and bandwidth and latency relative to traditional computers so I would like to say optics and electronics are going to work hand in hand optics will only really add value when it enhances electronics so I guess optical computing might come up in the context of image processing. So the traditional signal processing function that everyone is familiar with is the Fourier transform. This is one of the most basic mathematical operations that's been performed all the time. Computers can do Fourier transforms very well, but if you start to think about Fourier transforms for very big data sets in terms of image processing, there are certainly cases where optical uh, computing optical Fourier transforms start to become very attractive and uh, in terms of again the latency and the bandwidth and just in terms of the number crunching that is required in the computer if you can avoid having to go into the motherboard into the chip and you can perform the operation with fewer computational logic operations you're going to be more energy efficient you're going to have lower latency and you're going to benefit from the bandwidth capacity of photonics but again we have to be very careful about that term because there has been this misunderstanding that you know photonic signal processing is going to replace the traditional CMOS logic and I don't think that's what we've been saying. Again, it's photonics working hand-in-hand with electronics, providing, for example, communications within the computer, between motherboards, within the motherboard, on the chip, between transistors. And in certain cases, there are certainly functions where... I can perform an optical differentiation, or an optical integration, or an optical Hilbert transform, or an optical Fourier transform, and if I can do that all optically, I potentially have a lower latency, more energy efficiency.
1: And when you say you're doing that optically, you mean actually it's an analogue function of the lenses and gratings, all the other optical elements that you're using?
2: Yes, I'm literally referring to traditional optical components to perform some type of function that would be otherwise performed in the digital signal processing in our world we often think about you know digital versus analog in the context of microwave systems so with traditional microwave systems right now if you go to a radar lab you know they've got analog to digital converters that take that analog signal which is inherently an analog signal in the first instance convert that into bits and then it's processed in a digital signal processing system and those digital signal processing elements are very sophisticated and they're getting better all the time. But they are energy consuming, they are complicated, they are going to become limited in terms of bandwidth. The alternative is to use analog, and analog photonics potentially might allow you to do photonic computing, if you like, and that is going to offer advantages in terms of reduced latency, potentially energy consumption. But most importantly, photonics is going to provide you the bandwidth to process in real time that enormous bandwidth with an exquisite resolution. And going back to what we talked about earlier, my own research is really in that space, is providing filters and signal processing elements that in real time can process across that enormous range of frequencies, which a traditional ADC, analogue digital converter and DSP might not be capable of doing.
1: Is there anything you'd like to add?
2: Well, I think what's exciting at the University of Sydney is that the Sydney Nanoscience Hub, which is part of the Australian Institute of Nanoscale Science and Technology is providing new breathtaking capabilities for fabricating devices so right now we are making nanoscale devices in silicon at the University of Sydney in the -the state-of-the-art facilities that are part of the Sydney Nanoscience Hub. This is going to really transform our research and it's a step change in our capability they will allow our students and our graduates to really have access to some of the amazing tools that we've had to rely on from overseas for the last 15 years. I think it's going to be a big increase in terms of the quality of our research, but also our ability to translate these devices into some real-world applications and to spin-off companies and to grow our local
1: economy. Well, Ben Eagleton, thank you very much. Thank you. Nice to talk to you. That was Professor Ben Eggleton from the University of Sydney with the latest in communications technology research.
0: Maybe you won't be another Edison, but but how do you know you won't? (laughs) Edison may not have been a scientist when he was your age either, but the sciences, chemistry, biology and physics all give you a chance to discover while you're still in school where your interests are. Maybe so, but won't there still be some jobs where you can get by without science? (laughs) That'll be the day. Whatever you work at, son, you're still a citizen with the power to vote. Living in a scientific age, we need citizens who know enough about science to make intelligent decisions about what they do. We've used science to to prolong life, to increase security and happiness, but it can also be used for destruction. Are we going to use it constructively to promote peace and and give the world freedom from want? (laughs) It'll be up to you. And
1: you too. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? Record a voice memo on your phone or use the voicemail tab on the Diffusion website. We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations. To science at diffusionradio.com that's science at diffusionradio.com and please do send me an email so I know you're listening and would like to hear more episodes please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes tell your friends follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. join my patrons in supporting the show at patreon.com slash diffusionradio the news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin McLeod of incompetech.com Sound Check and Fact Checking by Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 27 stations on the Community Radio Network, including 2 RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8 Triple in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2 NVR in Nambucca Valley, and 3 MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science 360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com, that's www.diffusionradio.com, and check the website for links, photos, and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 900 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com c slash Diffusion Radio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.
0: Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate.